listening to the Extant Podcast from Golden Spiral Media. Participate in the podcast by calling 304-837-2278 or go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. And now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of the Extant Podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number 12, where we'll be talking about the season two premiere of the CBS summer series Extant. Episode is entitled Change Scenario, and it aired on July 1st, 2015. And Change Scenario was written by the new showrunners, married team Elizabeth Kruger and Craig Shapiro, who are best known, actually, for more female-oriented fare, including Bravo's Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. So we'll see if they have some uh, sci-fi chops, Dave. <laughs> yeah, because i never heard of that show. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's uh, some raising of the eyebrow of sci-fi fans everywhere as we went from season one to season two, and the showrunners got changed around, a lot of the cast got changed around, and it was a little bit worrisome wasn't it Dave? well you know it, it was worrisome on one level but on the other level i mean i think they understood that the show needed some tweaks if it was going to continue and keep its audience and they weren't afraid to make those tweaks so on the other hand as a showrunner fine you don't have any sci-fi credibility in terms of your imdb body of work so to speak but you got to start somewhere exactly and I think they did a great job. I think they defied expectation in that sense. And I was listening to our episode 11, uh, the season finale discussion for season one, uh, just in the past week, just to kind of refresh my memory about what we were talking about. And Dave, you had a lot of stuff to say about, or I, I think we both talked about the chemistry, the lacking of chemistry between John and Molly. And I think you even suggest maybe they should come back without John. And <laughs> sure enough, that looks like to be exactly what they did. Yeah, and that was a big problem for me with this show. Uh, I mean, his character, not, I mean, certainly the lack of chemistry was a problem, but just his character in general, and I don't know how much of that we put on the actor or put on the writers, but either way, I'm glad to see him gone. And I know that sounds cold. In a glorious fashion here in this premiere episode, too. At least they gave him a chance to uh, disappear for instead of just saying, oh, they got divorced or something. But let's talk about the new cast members a little bit. We've got Jeffrey Dean Morgan showing up as J.D. Richter. He didn't show up until about 30 minutes in, so he was only in the second half. But immediately there was chemistry between Halle Berry and J.D. Richter. Do you agree? Oh, I absolutely, I agree, and I love him. Yeah, I can't wait to see. And I just like the idea of him, the cop for hire kind of concept. Then we have probably some new ones also coming down the road, uh, but we saw a couple familiar faces, especially in the lab with John. Um, both Julie and Charlie were there, but we're missing Cameron Mannheim as Sam Barton. And one of my favorite characters that's missing is Gordon Kern. I mean, I know he was ISEA and all that, and we're not really dealing with ISEA this, this year, but I kind of miss him. Right now, as I've gone on record many times, I don't like spoilers. I don't read the articles. I haven't read anything about where season two is headed. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming by your saying that we know 
Cameron Mannheim's not coming back. No, I, I'm absolutely not sure about that. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> and the same with with Gordon Kern's character. I mean, obviously we know Goran Viznich is not coming back. Right. <laughs> unless it would be in flashbacks, and, and I doubt that's going to happen. And I think we already knew that director Sparks and Yasumoto were gone. We talked about that in episode 11 as well of our podcast. So, And speaking of our podcast, Dave, we're no longer called Dark Matter, the extant podcast. And hopefully the sci-fi fans in our audience will know why that is. And that's because there's a show called Dark Matter on sci-fi that would create confusion if our podcast were still called the Dark Matter podcast. Yeah, no question. And fortunately, that's a good show as well. But, uh, (laughs) you know, we're going to something that, that speaks for itself extant podcast exactly uh, oh and one other thing i forgot to mention that i'm wondering what they're going to do with we knew that odin got arrested last season but is his anti-tech group still going to be around is the, are they still going to be a problem for our protagonist yeah i mean that that's a good question and and like we said obviously yasumoto's storyline about wanting to prolong his life we assume is dead in the water yeah but you know that whole idea uh, about the government conspiracy related to Yasumoto and his control of ISEA, you, you know, whether there are still some fragments of that left, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I wonder, because it seems to be focusing in on the government conspiracy about the alien invasion and perhaps the commandeering of the humanics tech, but there's still the meteor goo that Yasumoto used to prolong his life. And are they just going to leave that by the wayside? I wouldn't be surprised if they did, to be honest. And that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, let's get into our episode discussion. Well, you know, one of the things we heard about, Mike, in terms of the spoiler stuff that I was unable to avoid, you know, this whole idea that season two was going to bring a sexiness to it. (laughs) You know, we open, and, and certainly... You know, you and I and then a lot of the posters on the Internet had some problems with that is like, okay, is this just a big cop out pandering to the audience, whatever. But it opens with Molly in a hospital setting and there are all these other patients who clearly are receiving some sort of virtual reality therapy. But the first scene, we don't figure that out right away because she's in that sex scene with and we're wondering who it's going to be. We realize, okay, it's not John. And then all of a sudden, once we hear her say, switch scenes. She says, change scenario, actually, is the title of this episode. Right. So at this point, okay, now we know what's going on. Well, it's weird, too, because it's almost as though they're saying last season was about something else, and now we're changing the scenario. It's almost like a nod to what they did to the show, because it's not like they went too in-depth with this whole virtual reality concept. It was just she was having sexy times and then she decided nah i think i'll have some family time instead with ethan right and you wonder you know what we read on the internet leading up to the premiere is this pretty much it (laughs) that's right well especially since you know here you've got the new showrunners that come from bravo's show for women pretty much and now they're going to do this. You wonder if it was just going to be getting a new audience in that might not necessarily be into sci-fi. Whereas I think this episode was very much sci-fi, even more so maybe than last season. Well, right, because men don't like watching sex on TV or in the <laughs> movies. So, But no, I, I agree with you. And, and contrary to a lot of the critics, I liked it. And I think you did too. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised and almost relieved 
at how good it was. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, we get the overlay six months earlier, and that couple who we saw in, in season one finds the offspring on the bridge kind of wandering around, take them in, and we see him in their home. Well, they also have an infant, which, uh, you know, anytime you see an alien and a baby, <laughs> we're worried. Yeah, because it brings up so many questions as to what happened in this scene. It's very much left up in the air because at first you're like, oh, okay, it's okay. He's just going to calm the baby. He's going to close the door so his rescuers can talk on the phone. And then he's just going to do that funny little visual effect like a mobo for the baby so that it will stop crying. And I thought, okay, maybe we're safe. <laughs> well, see, I wasn't so sure he was going to calm the baby. I mean, I was certainly relieved when that's, in fact, what happened. But then he begins shaking, mm -hmm. finally passing out on the floor. We see blood on the carpet. And, you know, that's how the couple finds him. And, you know, now that's obviously one of the big questions of the premiere. What happened? What happened? And, in fact, is he still alive? Yeah, because you start to think, he maybe is inhabiting the baby now? Is that what you thought? Yeah, sure. And so I, I don't know that we actually have an answer to that because obviously we know from later events in this episode that the alien spores, I guess you could say, or the impregnation of other women has occurred. And is that originating only from Molly's baby? Because the invasion from the Seraphim, the space station last season, didn't happen. So I think he's the only source there could be. Right. And, and you know, look, as far as alien invasion stories go, I mean, we've seen all sorts. I think this is kind of a unique twist on it. I like it. Yeah. And the other twist that is maybe counter to what people are thinking here is that I got the sense that Molly's child was a little bit human and understood that the invasion was possibly a bad thing for humanity. And we thought of him as sympathetic. In fact, I think we talked about, Dave, how we thought that maybe the offspring was responsible for Ethan transcending his physical form and going onto the cloud, which apparently didn't end up end up being the case. But we kind of ascribed positive aspects to this child. And so you wonder if there are some benevolent aspects to the offspring. Yeah. And hopefully nobody hacked the cloud once he uh, put his consciousness <laughs> up there. He might not be the same Ethan we knew. <laughs> well, you know, you never know. All right. But anyway, so then we, we go to four weeks later and the Senate investigation, the hearing on extraterrestrial life forms, and we see her in front of this senator. And, you know, we've talked about government conspiracy, who knows what, when. I'm assuming this senator does not know what's going on, really. No, he is realizing that Molly did the very brave thing by blowing up the space station, but he's not getting all the facts. And I, apparently Molly is doing that at the behest of, what do they call it, like NATSEC or the, the Global Security Com Commission works for, no, HOMSEC, that's what it is, HOMSEC. So there's the security organization, I guess you could say, that General Tobias uh, Shepard is part of. I just assumed it was Homeland Security, but... Oh, okay, well, a, a future version of it, perhaps. Right, <laughs> but regardless, the military seems to be in charge at this point. Yeah, yeah. But the Senate investigation basically clears her and thinks there's no alien invasion. And of course, that is what the general believes as well. He thinks that they stopped it, or they didn't really stop it, it stopped itself by virtue of the offspring dying. And so they have nothing to worry about. 
Right. Now, I was a little surprised that the senator thought this was a humorous situation. <laughs> How so? What did he well, say? Well, his little reference about so there's no ETs trying to phone home or something <laughs> like that, because you know, this is a serious business. And, and regardless of her lying uh, that there is no threat, still, uh, that surprised me. And, and whether or not the government per se will come back to be a, a player here, who knows? Well, I think the main thing is that they're trying to say that even though the space station blowing up was a big thing in the news, probably, they don't want the general public to know anything bad is happening moving forward so that the plot can happen in the background. Uh, I do think, though, that the conversation that Molly and Toby have after the... And isn't it interesting the fact that it's a family friend, someone who made a toast at their wedding, this right. General Tobias Shepard who doesn't seem to be all entirely good, even though he's a friend of of Molly's, because he says, you know, the threat's been contained. We don't want to panic. And you know whenever someone says that as their rationale, that you have every reason to panic. <laughs> right. And, you know, you said we don't know yet whether his intentions are good or not, and I agree with you, but I think at some level he has to have some doubts about Molly and how far he can trust her to play along with whatever the plan is going to be. And this guy is a four-star general, so yeah. he's very high up on the food chain. Well, also keep in mind that viewers are going to immediately make the association to his character on The Walking Dead, the governor, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I know a I, really bad guy. <laughs> I, I read that in the notes, but since I don't watch The Walking Dead, that... Well, it has to be mentioned, even though Dave and I are not Walking Dead viewers. Yeah. Well, he asks why John's not here, you know, I guess providing support for her. And, and that is a good question that I guess we kind of get the answer to later in the episode. But <laughs> you know, they both kind of laugh it off, implying they both know where he is. Well, you mean working on the uh, Humanics Project. Again. Right, right. Now, the irony is that, yes, he is working on it, but obviously he's working on it with Julie and that's... A story that's taken a life of its own from last season. Yeah, and, and I kind of like how it turned this way because Julie had been really seething in the background all season. And it just was like irritating that she was always wearing her heart on her sleeve and ne never really confronted everyone anyone about it. And Molly never confronted John about it. But here in the very first episode, it comes to a head. Julie is much more overtly flirting with John. And John tries to say, listen, you got to cut this out. This is not going to be happening. Whereas he almost seemed to be oblivious to it last season. Yeah. And, you know, ordinarily, I would say Molly's immediately walking in on them in the lab would be considered a trope. But I'm OK with that. I mean, we, we have to advance the story. Right. And it comes to a head very quickly where she uses this as motivation to investigate what probably went on between the two of them as she was in space. Right. And, and we get filled in pretty quickly on what's going on with Ethan, that whereas he thought it was going to take months to get him online, and we don't really get a clear explanation on whether Ethan consciously uploaded his consciousness to the cloud or whether you know his systems did it automatically. I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's interesting, though, because we thought it was affected by the offspring last season and we thought it was much more uh, metaphysical <laughs> in nature but it turns out yeah it was more of a fortuitous backing up to the cloud and again this might be because of the change of writers and the change of the writing team who knows 
where they decided we can't have Ethan as this bodiless voice. We need to have him back in his body. But what's interesting is that when they take him home and they're tucking him in, Ethan kind of explains that when he was up in the cloud, he was like a bird, free to go anywhere. And now I'm not. And that might have repercussions for him. He might have felt more free without a body. And uh, he seems to take it in stride here. But at the same time, that statement seemed a little strange. And it raises the question, free to do what? Exactly. And did he do anything while he was there? Right. Because, I mean, you know, certainly one of the things that we're most unsure about is once he's powered up in the lab, is he going to recognize Molly? And of course he does. They hug it out. And and I think more than anything, you know, her reaction to him was a little surprising. I You know, because we always talked about in season one, she had this certain coldness to her that, yes, I love you. Yes, you're my son. But there was it was almost that, that point that she wouldn't cross in giving everything of herself to him emotionally. Well, I felt like in season one, though, there was a transition. At the beginning, she was like that. But then she became much more devoted to him. And certainly you can see by that virtual reality therapy that she was undergoing that she does definitely miss Ethan and is very happy to see him here. And of course, getting that hug immediately where Julie was about to have that all to herself without Molly there. Yeah. And you said you mentioned her seething. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It's clear here. And she just, you know, leaves the lab clearly upset. Right. And so they're back at home and the family again. And Julie is left out of it once more. John actually concludes from Ethan's experience that he can't die. And he thinks that's kind of an interesting concept, uh, especially considering he's trying to make his experience as human as possible. Right. And, you know, one of the most important science fiction themes gets raised here is in that what does it mean to be human? And Molly explains to him that the fact that he sacrificed himself to save her on the seraphim exhibits more humanity than most on Earth. And he seems really pleased with that. And in fact, she said, do you hear me? Yeah. And and so I think this is probably even a more of a transition than perhaps was present in season one, where Molly has now completely bought into Ethan as her child because of the sacrifice he made. Yep. But. She can't sleep, grabs a bottle of wine and goes to the kitchen. And, you know, her suspicions obviously were raised at the lab when she saw Julie doing the little touching his palm thing. And now her suspicions are raised. So she asks Gina to play the security footage for the week before she returned from space. And obviously we know where she's headed with this. Yeah. And interestingly, the cameras were off in the lab and and you want to wonder if Julie did that or John did that. Probably Julie. <laughs> That's what I thought. But this toy robot that was sitting up on the file cabinet, by the way, that toy robot is a real robot. It's at makewonder.com. I actually bought it for my daughter, the little blue robot that she pulls down from the shelf. <laughs> I actually have that in my home. So who don't you trust? <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to say. It doesn't have the webcam capability like she used here, but <laughs> oh, okay. it, it was something she was able to pull up. But Yeah, she rewinds that tape and is able to catch them in the act. And apparently John was participating in it. It was not one-sided during that time. Right. And then they used the facial recognition software because Peter Robot doesn't record audio. (laughs) And she's able to obviously hear what they're saying, which includes Julie asking John if he loves her. Now, he doesn't really say because we hear this stop playback. (laughs) And we're like, wait a minute. 
That's his real voice. Yeah, Molly interrupted them, and now John is interrupting her. Yeah, and I was waiting for the classic line, and I'm glad the writers didn't use it. I can explain. (laughs) Well, it was a pretty extended conversation that went nowhere, and I was almost glad that it was interrupted by the government storming in and saying, we need to take this robot for national security reasons. Yeah, but what I really did not like is, is that whole approach he takes that somehow this is her fault. You know? Oh, okay. Well. And like she says, look, I'm an astronaut. This is my job. Exactly. Right. You know what I do. So, you know, really, it's just the the typical, and you we usually see it in the man rather than the woman, that, uh, no, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Right. It, it didn't work last season, and it's not going to work now. But no. he doesn't really get a chance to go anywhere with that. But it is interesting that they really are trying to argue hard for Ethan as their son. This is kidnapping. I mean, Molly especially wants them to treat him like a human, but there are no laws in place for this, and they are able to confiscate Ethan as a security risk. And I think it makes a certain amount of sense when they go to General Shepard's house to try and protest this. And, you know, he says, well, he did break through ISEA security as though it were tissue paper. Yeah, and, and he blew up a building. Like you said, it does make sense. But, you know, I thought this was a great scene. And one of the accusations directed towards Halle Berry is that she overacts. Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with that. No, I don't either. I think she is very heartfelt and emotional. That's why they hire someone like Halle Berry. That's why she gets awards. Yeah. And, you know, we hear Ethan screaming for his father and, you know, don't worry, we're going to come to get you. She promises as the van obviously takes them away. And I kept thinking I hear a helicopter in the background, but it could be. <laughs> obviously they took him in a van. So. Yeah, and the interesting detail that Tobias Shepard brings up when they go to his house, and he seems to be trying to intervene on their behalf. So I, I still wonder, is he good or is he bad? Or will he end up being uh, someone who roadblocks them? But he does say that all service bots, version 4.0 and higher, whatever that means, are being decommissioned specifically because of the Skynet danger, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking back to season one and we did see that one episode in a park where we saw one of the service bots. So we don't know what version that bot was. (laughs) Well, I don't think that was pretty high. (laughs) No, I wouldn't think so either. So, you know, the fact that they're being decommissioned, we wonder, does that mean they're actually going to be recommissioned? Ah, maybe. Well, I definitely think that there are some plans in place at the humanics area moving forward that we'll have to keep an eye on. But since this is a national security issue, John points out they can't even challenge it in court the way Molly wants to. We got to, we're going to sue them for wrongful imprisonment. And she keeps using human arguments right, for sure. Ethan's uh, incarceration. And I just think that her mind is just fraught with worry. And, and you know, look, she's an astronaut, so she probably has a fairly good grasp on laws concerning national security. But the scene in the van, oh yeah, when Ethan asks where they're taking him, quiet robot. Yeah, and this is hearkening back to the treatment of Ethan on the island last season when he was treated like an object as well. So yeah, there's clearly some anti-android. Ethan is kind of a one of a kind, so I don't know that they really have 
the ability to conceive of him as a person because it's not as common as it as it is in some other sci-fi shows right i mean we understood that scenario in season one at ethan's school where the parents did know yeah because you know they were in the community but the world at large is not familiar with it but still it's kind of cruel that the guard thinks of him that way but it makes ethan take matters into his own hands or try to escape by using the guard's own taser, I guess you could say. Yeah, now, sure. now, did he make it go off without even touching it? Uh, you know what? That's what I thought. That's kind of cool. <laughs> that is very cool. And and I, I like the fact that he tried to get away. And, and again, I liked that as soon as he comes to that barrier, standing there's Julie. Hello, rabbit. Yeah, and I like this. Uh, Julie is such an annoying character, and we were really being irritated by her last season. And now you've taken that irritation that the audience feels and put it to good use by making her into a villain and kind of a a few screws loose kind of villain where she has this devotion to Ethan that's becoming unhealthy. Right. And she has a lot of devotion to the project and the way it's now changing. So, yeah, with all of this power in the hands of somebody that's emotionally on the edge, uh, you know, the, it, it opens up a lot of storyline possibilities. Yeah, and I like having a nice, strong villain, uh, which I'm not sure we really had last season because of Yasumoto kind of being villainous at sometimes and not at other times. So I like this turn for Julie. Right. Now, can we say that because of this scene that we know how all of this got started? So in other words, what I'm saying is, is Julie responsible for this scenario where the military comes in and takes him because he's a national security risk, or did this come from over her head? I think it came from over her head because when John talks to her later, she mentions that she was contacted by Homesec to adapt the humanics technology for defense purposes, and she wanted to maintain control. She didn't want someone else to do it. If we didn't do it, someone else would, she tells John. And so she wants to still be involved so she can control it. She thinks for good reasons and with John's interest at heart, but really it might be a little bit more selfish. Well, I mean, we can adapt the program to military needs without seizing him. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, did she play up the fact that he might be dangerous? Oh, maybe. So that she could get control because she's basically angry that John jilted her. Yeah, that could be. That's that's true. Her, her involvement might have changed the way that it was executed. Right, which just plays into the scariness that her character uh, possesses at this point. And yeah, I mean, I love her as the antagonist at this point. All right, and and John immediately has to confront her because you know Molly falls asleep on Ethan's bed, obviously distraught at his being taken away, and she wakes to find a note from John that says, I will never give up on him or us. I love you. And he's already gone off to the Humanics Labs to see what he can do from there. And his lab has been taken over by a bunch of... And they're not all military-style guys, although they're being guarded that way. But I guess some military scientists or government scientists. Yeah. I know who you are, and you can't go in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> One guy tells him. And then, of course, Julie comes up, and he's... You know, they're locking us out of our lab. And I'm thinking, as I'm sure the, the viewers are, nah, they're locking you out of the lab. Yeah, not us. <laughs> but yeah, John says that whatever the homesec folks told Julie about adapting this tech for defense purposes, it's not something you can do quickly. 
And I like his explanation that it would take years for the programming to handle, quote, morally ambiguous situations like the military confronts. Right. And he explains how they have protocols that they have built into Ethan so that he can learn to make these moral and ethical decisions along the way. And the only way you can program that is by letting them experience life. Exactly. And so now the idea is she's suspending the protocols, although it does seem as if it maybe is not as simple as simply turning a switch. No, I think she talks to Charlie later. He's He's been tasked with the ethics protocols. And yeah, it's not a simple matter of just turning it off. Right, right. And, you know, she wants to control everything so that they can rebuild their life and family together. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, that's going to happen. John's like, there is no life between us. There's no family here. So he finally spells it out for her because, like I said, all of season one, he was just kind of going, uh, whatever, creepy Julie, and not confronting her about it. And finally he just says, this is not happening. Yeah, but then what about the phone call? Yeah, who is she calling there? I think I may have just really screwed up. And what does that mean? Uh, because we, we know what comes on its heels. Yeah, is she saying that she screwed up by not including John, not getting John to buy into what she was doing? Or, I mean, is she making, I mean, is this essentially the kill call? Oh, that could be. Like she's putting in motion the reprogramming of his car to stop on the train tracks. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, you know, we see Molly playing with the kitchen torch and, yeah, she's disturbed. Yeah, she is disturbed. Declines John's call, starts burning his note, and obviously we find out later that I guess it didn't burn the entire house down. No, but, but it isn't it cool how it foreshadows what they she says later to the psychiatrists where she apparently almost burned her house down perhaps in a future event and seeing her play with that kitchen torch kind of shows her tendencies in that sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. So then we see, you know, John's in the car trying to leave a message, and then suddenly the car, and, and we've seen this before, the cars that drive themselves, he's locked in the car on the train tracks. And the computer thinks he's 20 feet back. Right, exactly. So clearly been tampered with. Right. And again, you know, we, we talk as sci-fi fans about Skynet and the machines taking over and all of that. I mean, the machine didn't take over in this case. Somebody told the machine to take over. Right, and it, it makes you see that the government conspiracy to grab up Ethan is not necessarily because they want to be protected from people like Ethan, from robots like Ethan. It's so they can exploit them. And so the humans are the ones that are dangerous here, not the robots. Yeah. And I think we did see a similar storyline in an NCIS episode a number of seasons ago. <laughs> you have a better memory for where that one stuff. of the researchers got trapped in the car. But again, in the same vein, it was one of the colleagues that programmed it yep, to do that. Yep. It's not the rise of the machines here. No, no, <laughs> unfortunately. All right. Well, anyway, so we go six months later and, you know, Molly's back at uh, the rest center. I forget what the name of it is. It's called Restwell, interestingly. Restwell. <laughs> uh, and she's got a hearing after 90 days of mandatory institutionalization. And I was shocked at her attitude in this hearing. Yeah. As if, do you really want to get released? Yeah, she's trying at the beginning and saying, I, I'm so happy and grateful for my time here. I'm really going to miss this place. Sarcasm. She, she kind of lays it on thick, doesn't she? But then she blows up very quickly. She's very irritable. 
Yeah, and, and rightly so. They think she has not come to terms with her husband's death. Now, when they mention about her being drunk and disorderly, almost, I guess that's obviously while she was on the outside. So, yeah, I think that's in the intervening time between what we saw and the six months later time period. She's had some problems that have led her to be institutionalized, including being drunk and disorderly. These are probably separate events burning the house down, attacking Julie with a shovel at John's funeral because she just couldn't believe that Julie would have the audacity to show up. And because, you know, <laughs> I'd be crazy if I didn't attack her. That's right. But but then the problem is, and we know this as genre fans, and she knows it, that anytime you blame the government for keeping you somewhere, you come off sounding crazy. Right. Well, she thinks that they're bringing up these old things that she did which got her incarcerated as reason to keep her there whereas if she hasn't done anything since then and has done everything they told her to do then why are they bringing up the original reasons for her being put there right rather than what she's done since then to get better right now they bring up the brain scan which we know was true that uh, sam barton did hide right mm -hmm. yeah but that had to do with of course the presence of the alien Right. True. Well, regardless, she's got her stay extended another 30 days, which actually I was surprised it wasn't more. That's true. Maybe another 90. <laughs> and I love how we segue into the next scene. And OK, some more sex for extant. Okay, <laughs> I'm good with that. And, and, and it doesn't take us long to realize it's not Molly. It's not right. It's nobody we know, which great and we're introduced to jd richter who the actor's name jeffrey dean morgan and we learn he's some kind of cop that again we know we're in the future we're never really i don't know if we have an actual year or not we did a timeline last year with the help of one of our listeners actually that put it around 2050 okay but now i'm wondering if that might even be too far in the future but i do like the concept of just like the isea was a privately held space organization, law enforcement has kind of gone the same way. Yeah, yeah. And that he's got the opportunity to either accept or decline this job. And there's a $20,000 reward for finding the killer. And he's got 20 seconds to make up his mind because there are other bidders in line. <laughs> yeah, this is a choice assignment. And apparently as a patrol specialist, even while he's engaging in a romantic interlude, he can't necessarily uh, pick and choose as much as he would like, especially I get the sense that $20,000 is a fairly large payout for a crime of this sort, especially since it's now the third of a specific type of murder victim. Yep. Sorry, honey, you're not that hot. <laughs> Rain check. Exactly. And uh, they're going to be back Friday. So are we going to see this girl again? I'm guessing no. But No, probably not. Anonymous uh, tryst. Yeah. Uh, so then we, we go to Molly lying in bed in the facility. She overhears two orderlies talking about hearing on the news about a third woman who died when her belly was blown open. And obviously that gets her attention from what happened on the Seraphim. Yeah, we immediately think of Katie Sparks on the Seraphim. In fact, I think uh, Molly even flashes back to that a little bit. And so she immediately realizes something is up, that she's had no news from the outside. And so this is the only way she can get her news. And you get the sense that she's been 
kind of plying Dave for information, <laughs> the orderly named Dave. I, right, right. I love that he was named Dave. I kept thinking of you as he was <laughs> going through all of his misfortunes. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> but yeah, she overhears this and immediately the investigation starts for her. Right. And tells the car to take her to a specific address, you know, after she orchestrates again with fire. Uh, yeah. A diversion to get out of the uh, Restwell facility. Well, she it's interesting because she tries to get Dave to just tell her. It kind of has to seduce him a little bit to get him to show him his phone and see that this does look very much like Katie Sparks. And then I don't know if that's a taser or like a like a med baton, but she drugs him and or shocks him. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was a little surprised that she was able to go into the pharmacy and that the. Oh, yeah the farm bot or whatever it is gave her what she asked for, even though she was not a doctor. Right. And, and that this was not what she was prescribed to take. Not to mention the med bot points out that they're explosive. Right. And so. <laughs> it's like a lot of things like this where they're decommissioning anything 4.0 and higher, but the service bots in general seem pretty dumb. I mean, she takes Dave's phone and that's enough for her to use an app to get his car. And the car actually doesn't even recognize that it's not Dave's voice telling it where to go. <laughs> yeah, true. Although I guess you could argue that Dave could have a passenger. Uh, yeah, whatever. But uh, <laughs> yeah. all right. So so we're back at the Humanics Lab. Julie's now in charge, and she's not a good boss. No, <laughs> we can do better, people. It's like it harkens back to uh, the Bionic Woman, or is it? The biotic woman, or is it the million dollar or ten? God, what is the name? Six million. Six million dollar man. We can do better. But um, yeah, she's seeing this leg speed, and it immediately made me think of those shows from the 70s. Right. And we understand that, that in this kind of situation, she is probably under immense pressure from the military to make things happen and happen quickly. But still, a lot of this is probably residual from what happened with John. Well, the other thing that's interesting from Julie's perspective is the fact that she's dressed up more like a boss. But when she's with Charlie and she kind of calls him on the carpet for joking around with her and undermining her authority, when the technicians leave, she does kind of act like her normal self around Charlie. Sorry about that, you know. Yeah. And she has to be a hard ass now. She doesn't like it. Well, right, as she tells Charlie that, that she needs people to respect her and that if you're joking around with me, that's going to play into that. Well, also, she's got Charlie working on a very important part of the software, whereas the hardware is ahead of what he's working on with the ethics programming. So I have the feeling that Charlie's going to fall short, and that's probably where the danger is going to come from with these military humanics. Right, right. But we do also get a little bit of flirting from Charlie. We have to remember that he kind of had the thing for Julie as well. And he tries to ask her out for a drink. Uh, but I guess now that she's the boss, it's even less likely than it was last season. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder about that because I think what's going to happen is he is going to start to see that she's off the rails mm -hmm. and that by her being off the rails with this project, which is of immense importance, is he going to have to start doing something to rein her in and you know will that involve him you know meeting with the military people in charge you know i just wonder whether he's going to end up on team molly yeah i could see that happening 
especially since uh, she gives him a rain check, just like J.D. Richter gave his lady friend a rain check. And he says, if I counted up all the rain checks, I'd need a couple umbrellas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's been rejected a lot. Yeah. Well, Molly's car, or Dave's car with Molly in it, takes her to the same crime scene that J.D.'s working. She enters, starts looking around, then all of a sudden he steps out of the shadows. You move, I shoot. <laughs> Yeah, he's got her number the whole time. She's trying to weasel her way out, say she's part of the med cleanup team, but apparently that's done by service robots a week afterwards, so yeah. he knows she's lying, and he won't let her talk her way out of it. In fact, she's trying to tell him about the government conspiracy. She comes off sounding like a crazy person, but she just gives that one little detail that plants a seed for him later, and that is the fact that check to see if the victim was pregnant. She was 26 years old, young woman, just like the other victims. Check to see if she's pregnant. Right. Now, did you like his little recognition device? I mean, we've seen this before, but it's like you put a thumbprint on the thing and it's, uh, we, you know, again, we see that in NCIS all the time. <laughs> yeah. To identify. Retinal scanner, I think. Yeah. And he realizes, oh, Dr. Molly Woods, a real life space cadet. And <laughs> I, I was a little surprised, you know, once he saw who she was on the one hand i was a little surprised he let them take her but i i guess everything happened so quickly he didn't really have much of a choice to think it out well i kind of like it that he didn't buy into it right away it's not until later that he realizes she might be useful so yeah he calls the authorities right away because she's like you know they're tracking me because i stole a car and a phone and he goes i hate it when that happens yeah. i mean he's really <laughs> snarky the whole time yeah because obviously she's done a lot to uh, make herself look like a suspicious character. And even though he finds out she's this famous person, it doesn't dissuade him. You know, he's sticking to the job. Yeah, exactly. All right. So Julie comes home with pizza and we find that Ethan's there. And, and now does he not know that John's dead and Molly's been in a mental institution? Oh, yeah, that's true. How much does he know in these intervening six months? You know, she reminds him, this is your home. Remember, we talked about it. So what exactly did they talk about? Right. And it's kind of cool that Ethan is not buying into Julie the way he might have early in season one. Uh, she was a good companion for him, especially since, remember how he was with Odin? Odin just kind of said the right things and Ethan kind of bought into what he was saying and liked the fact that someone was treating him more like a person and all that kind of stuff. Whereas now, he's very suspicious of yes. Julie, someone who he trusted. He learned. Yeah. I definitely think he learned from his experience with Odin and perhaps learned something while he was in the cloud. <laughs> right. So what's going to happen as, as Charlie works on disabling these protocols? You know, you start to wonder, is, is Charlie going to start stalling? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And Ethan maybe might play a role in it if he is able to escape or become a player at all. Perhaps he might have some kind of influence over the lack of morality that the robots have that come after him. Right. I mean, at what point does he become so suspicious of Julie that he makes some sort of a play? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think he's smart enough now and and evolved enough to maybe do something like that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, anyway, we're back at Restwell. I'm not sure what the deal with the headaches. Is that related to her yeah. medication? Or? Well, I thought she was faking it at first to get Dave to come up or something when she was making her initial investigations. But it looks like she's in the room having headaches again 
when she's in her room. So I don't know if we're supposed to notice that and that it has something to do with the offspring. Cause you know, she had that connection to her half alien son originally, but I don't know if that's even in play anymore. Right. Or does she just use headaches yeah. to get something she needs? Right. She, she knows that gets Dave in the room. Well, in this case, I don't think she wants Dave in the room. <laughs> he actually comes off his own accord to pick up his rain check, so to speak. He's really kind of a sleazy character. Yeah. Because he's pissed about the fact that she drugged him and his performance review was, review was coming up and he missed out on a on a big raise, apparently. Yeah, which you can kind of understand, <laughs> yeah. but his reaction to it, no, is, is no. not acceptable. No, in fact, he's actually interrupted by one of his coworkers. And I think she even knows that, oh, here goes Dave again. We got to uh, make sure he doesn't get himself in trouble. Well, I'm almost surprised they allowed him to continue to attend to her, you know, almost just move him to some other patient and bring somebody because there is this history between the two of them. Well, maybe he's there of his own accord, but yeah, it's definitely something where his performance review should have been negative. <laughs> right, but his uh, sleazy approach gets interrupted. Molly's got a visitor, and and of course we're wondering who that's going to be. And it's J.D. Richter who's got a judge that owed him a favor or three, <laughs> and he gets her out on a 72-hour pass, and we're pretty sure it's going to extend beyond 72 hours. <laughs> yeah. She's a material witness because of the fact that she knew about the pregnancy. He had found some prenatal vitamins, I guess, in the girl's apartment or, or place of residence. And so he's willing to hear her out a little bit more, even though Molly, again, leads right with the crazy and <laughs> talks about the government being after her. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, like you said, he finds the prenatal vitamins and, and that's why he's come to see her. But she is an astronaut. And, and again, while the public at large has not been made privy to what actually went on, up in space on the Seraphim, the fact that she's an astronaut, the fact that we're in 2050, you know, what, 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 you know, it can't be that crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. There are some occurrences surrounding her that lend credence to her crazy talk. <laughs> right. And, you know, the one thing I just thought of just now, you know, where I said we know it's going to extend beyond 72 hours, although maybe the whole season will take place over the course of three days. Oh, that could be, yeah. yeah. Who knows? A la 24. Yeah, 72 is plenty to extend across an entire season, right? So yeah, she has to reassure, reassure Richter that she's completely stable. And I love this scene where she's trying to say, listen, don't worry. You're going to benefit from associating with me. Just one second. Let me take this shovel and smash in the guy's windshield. Oh, yeah, she's perfectly stable. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me a lot of my ex-wife. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why he's willing to... Yep. Go with it. All right. Now, the final scene, I love its ambiguity. So we've got this woman who's browsing through selections. Now, you put in the notes Tinder style. I have no idea what that even means. <laughs> That's an app that you can just kind of look through people that you might be interested in, and you're just swiping back and forth across their profile pictures. And that's what she seems to be doing, looking through some men. And I'm not sure if she selected this guy or if she just was approachable in that sense. It just seemed strange that she was looking through pictures when he showed up. Right, because he I guess he saw her and just walked over. Yeah, I think so. And then he brings up that idea that technology separates us. Do you want to go out for some fresh air? And, you know, then we obviously see that his eyes glow. So now the question is, who is this guy? 
him? How did he get this way? Well, I think it's also telling that he begins with that phrase, technology separates us. He turns off her little tablet that's on the table. And I get the sense, again, that that's something to do with the social aspect of the bar. But that can't be a a throwaway comment because it's almost like aliens versus robots in this show, (laughs) you know? And he says, technology separates us. I feel like there's going to be some kind of technology versus alien life theme going to go on, but I could be wrong. Right. So, but, but I mean, the question, look, on the one hand, we've got these three women who obviously gave birth to an alien human hybrid, right? I, I think that's safe to say. Yes. And I know that they all probably grew up very fast, just like Amali's child did. So the fact that this is an adult male is similar to Katie Sparks being an adult woman on the Seraphim when she showed up on the Aruna. Right. So, but but this fast? Well, well here's what I'm getting at is, is that is this the older version of the offspring? Because oh. we assume he's dead, and, and Shepard tells Molly, look, you can see the body if you want, but is he just banking on the fact that she won't want to see the body of her dead son? I don't know. I think they do have a body because he jumped maybe into the baby. Maybe it's the grown-up baby. Okay. Although, again, that would have to accelerate the growth quite a bit because we're talking about a, what, seven-month timeline, something like that? Yeah. Definitely less than a year. Yeah, but... Either way, I love the ambiguity here. So then we've got possibly at least four. Right. If one child came from each of the victims plus the original, that's four, right? Yep. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And I wonder what is the, is it something where the offspring has decided to carry out the alien invasion where they couldn't make it happen by bringing the seraphim down to earth? Like, how is this happening and why is it happening this way? I, I, I wasn't sure what the offspring's motivations were. And now it seems like he's just carrying out the original plan. Right. So, you know, we got a lot of questions. And and again, to me, I love the transition that the writers and the sh- new showrunners have made. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's a total departure. No, I think they did it admirably well, considering it was practically a reinvention of the cast. Right. So... I like where they're going. Obviously, you know, who ordered John killed? And and the fact that you involved Julie, perhaps, in that, I think is a really cool idea that I had not thought of. And is it something that Tobias is involved in? I think that Tobias is not entirely their friend in this case. I think he's kind of like Director Sparks in that sense. Yeah, and, and the question will be, who is pulling his strings? Right, exactly. There's got to be somebody above him. And so is it going to be Molly and JD versus Julie and Tobias? That kind of thing? Yeah. What role will Ethan play? Yeah, exactly. And will he escape from Julie? I think it's definitely a interesting move that Julie makes to sabotage the Humanics Project. I think there's going to probably be coming out maybe with the uh, the other Humanic that was in development. Remember Lucy? Yeah, sure. The girl that was being made uh, at the time that season one was going on. So yeah, it could just be the first of the soldiers coming out. And Julie, I think, is a little bit naive in thinking that she can control the situation. Yeah, and and I like the fact that Charlie now possibly plays a much more significant role in season two than he did in season one. So I'm liking that. All right, and we mentioned uh, General Shepard. I'm wondering who is holding the purse strings for Molly's incarceration in the psych ward? Because is someone going to notice that she's out and try and get her back under control? Right. 
Probably. <laughs> or will they kill her? Uh, you know, which kind of begs the question, why, if, if they really perceive her to be a danger, why not just kill her? That's right. Instead of just keeping her in one spot like that. Yeah. Well, maybe she's too visible, too famous. But with astronauts, I figure a year has gone by. They probably have forgotten all about Molly Woods. But she's going to be out there doing some investigating now. And I, I think it's going to be a, a fun ride specifically because her new partnership with J.D. Richter already has more chemistry than any of the stuff that she did with uh, John her husband last season. Yeah, because their personalities just seem to be total opposites. Yeah. Which is perfect. Yeah, it's like the odd couple with cops. What do we call it? A good cop, bad cop, or the uh, cop who plays by the rules and the cop who throws the book out the window, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and I'm looking forward to the season. Uh, very happy with the direction that it has begun with. And we're hoping, Dave, that some people will chime in here and tell us what they think of the premiere episode and the second episode uh, as we get into next week's podcast because this week we have no feedback. <laughs> I guess I'm not totally surprised by that, but we did have a lot of people who were regular contributors last season, and we're hoping they're going to chime in again this season. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully they just forgot it was on. I mean, there is a lot <laughs> with Sci-Fi Friday. There's a lot to keep up with these days, so I think they'll be back. Yeah, so please uh, go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to let us know your thoughts and we'll uh, share it out with everyone. I also want to mention that we've added a social media outlet. Last season, we just went through Twitter with Dark Matter GSM. Now we're at Extant GSM. And you can also join our Facebook group, which is just getting started. It's a little small right now, but uh, we're going to get the discussion going there. It's already got quite a few posts and it's at facebook.com slash groups slash extant podcast as well. So definitely follow us there. Uh, we're going to see if we can get this discussion going and get the intrigue spread throughout the fandom, which I guess is known as the view manix. Oh, nice. Days. <laughs> but that's it for this edition of the extant podcast. Keep up with show news and fan interaction on Twitter. As I mentioned, we're at extant GSM and go ahead and join our Facebook group as well. And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of Extant Episode 2 of Season 2 entitled Morphoses. In the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the Extant Podcast, please consider rating us and reviewing us in iTunes by going to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes. And we'll talk to you next weekend.